Good morning, church. All right. Let's um, let's hear God from His Word this morning in Philippians chapter two. I am reading from verses nineteen to thirty. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for your love towards us. We're thankful for this word that you have given to us. That is your word to us. God, we submit ourselves now before you, before your word. I pray that you would convince our minds, you would convict our hearts, and that you would cause us to be obedient to serve the Lord Jesus for his glory. In his name we pray, amen. Well, I want to invite you to keep your Bibles open as we study this text of Scripture together. Let me start by telling you about William Tyndale. I wonder if you know about him. I think we really must because... Your ESV, your NIV, your NASB, your NLT, ABCDEFG version of your Bible that you have in your hands on your device, that is a Bible in English that you can read and understand. This was made possible because of William Tyndale. Imagine with me that you are a churchgoer in England in the 1500s. The only Bible that is available to you is in Latin. Most people like yourselves don't read, don't understand Latin. Whatever the priest says, which is also in Latin, goes. There's no internet for you to fact check anything. There's no Bible that you can read to verify his teachings. In this context, God raised up William Tyndale, 
a brilliant man who was proficient in eight languages. He was becoming increasingly influenced by the teachings of Scripture and also of by Martin Luther, the Reformer. And Tyndale was convicted that England needed an English Bible so that people can read Scripture for themselves and be saved by the gospel. Now, at that time in England, Bible translation was a crime punishable by execution. In fact, even owning any copy of any translated Bible was illegal. So, Tyndale left England for Europe and became a fugitive for the rest of his life, fleeing from city to city to avoid capture, but all the while translating all of the Bible into the English language by himself. He would never return to his homeland again, but was later arrested and executed. But copies of the English Bible that he translated by himself eventually made its way back to the shores of England, sparking a wave of reform, allowing the people of England to hear the gospel as they read the Word of God in their own language. William Tyndale was a servant, and he served faithfully for the sake of the gospel and for the love of his nation. Today, we want to look at biblical servanthood in this text of Scripture in Philippians 2. Now, at first glance, you may be tempted to just quickly skim over this text. After all, here there are just a couple of names, some personal instructions, some individual travel plans, hardly material sufficient for a punchy Twitter post. However, before we move on to chapter 3, let us consider what God would have to say to us about servanthood in this text of Scripture. So today in this text, I want us to see two marks of biblical servanthood as illustrated in the lives of three men, and then I will conclude with three exhortations. First, biblical servanthood is marked by an all-in commitment to the gospel. Biblical servanthood is marked by an all-in commitment to the gospel. Consider Timothy. We first met him in Acts 16. He was a disciple in Asia Minor, that is modern-day Turkey, whom Paul took along in his mission. On Paul's second missionary journey, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they came to Philippi and eventually planted the first church there. And ever since, Timothy has remained steadily by Paul's side as a trusted friend and a co-laborer in the gospel. And here in our text, Paul outlined his upcoming plans for Timothy, and he gave us some insights into his trusted companion. Look now in verses 21 to 22. Paul wrote this, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy was not like those others. Remember in 1.15 that there were those who preached Christ out of envy and rivalry. Those others had ulterior motives and dishonorable attitudes. Their character, their manner of life stand as a direct contradiction to the gospel that they preached. But not so with Timothy. 
He is one of proven worth or proven character, as the NASB translates it. Because of his service for the gospel, Timothy no doubt faced many adversities. We're reminded in Philippians 1.29 that it has been granted that for the sake of Christ, one should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Timothy has been tried, he has been tested, he has suffered, and he has proven through testing to be worthy of the gospel. This is a man of proven character. Just as gold is not destroyed or consumed in the flames of a furnace, but rather is purified and strengthened, so Timothy's character has been refined by the afflictions he faced due to his allegiance to the gospel. In Paul's estimation, Timothy was 100% committed to the gospel. Not only was he all in for the advance of the gospel, he was also all in to live a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel that he preached. Let's consider Paul. We see that Paul is equally an all-in servant for the gospel. Back in verse 22, Paul noted that Timothy served with him, alongside him, together, together, both of them, serving for the gospel. The word serve here is interesting. It derives from the word, the root word, slave. So another way we might summarize this section of the verse is that Paul and Timothy slaved together in the gospel. Now, the term slave certainly carries with it troubling connotations. Yet, Paul seemed to have been quite proud to wear this title, slave of Jesus Christ. In fact, he often referred to himself as such in his letters, including right here in the opening of Philippians. Strange, isn't it? Here's why. Paul gladly acknowledged that he belonged to Jesus, since it was Jesus who gave his life as a ransom, as an exchange for Paul's own, in order to rescue him from the jaws of sin and death and to bring him into the kingdom of life and righteousness. Paul owed his life to Jesus. In other words, his life was no longer his. He had no rights of his own. He had no agenda of his own. Rather, he served only the purposes and plans of his merciful master. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He, that is Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Without grumbling, without questioning, Paul joyfully and faithfully submitted his will to his master's commission to make disciples for Jesus. And so he resolved in his mission to know Nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All that Paul taught, all that he preached, all that um, he proclaimed, he exhorted, all that he wrote, all of it, all was infused with the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Now, you do laundry, yes? So, you may be aware that there are a number of cardinal rules associated with the art of doing laundry. 
Now, I only know one of them, and I actually have to learn it the hard way. And that rule is you shouldn't be mixing uh, your white-colored clothing with your dark-colored clothing because the dark-colored clothing might bleed onto all of your white clothing, especially if you use hot water. So flashback to first year of university, I was living at Queen's um, in residence, and I was faced with doing my first load of laundry in residence. And um, we had to pay for, well, we have to pay for our laundry. And um, so armed with my frugal Asian mentality, I said to myself, why would I want to do two medium loads when I can do one big load for the price of one? And is this rule about not mixing dark color clothing and um, white color clothing even true? So, in went my white clothing, in went all my dark color clothing, along with this dark green pair of pants. I think you know where this is going. Whereas once, I had a crisp white shirt. After this incident, I got a brand new mint green top. <laughs> Whereas once I had nice white socks, after this incident, I became the proud owner of socks coated with the fresh colors of spring foliage. The dominant color of the green plant pants has colored everything in the laundry. Likewise, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was the dominant color in Paul's life, so much so that it overflowed into all of his words, all of his teachings. So clothed with the fullness of Christ, this was how Paul and Timothy served side by side for the gospel. Consider Epaphroditus. Paul wrote in verses 27 and 30, Indeed, he was ill, near to death. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus was the special envoy from the Philippians to bring supplies to Paul and to minister to him while in prison so that Paul might continue the work of gospel proclamation. And at some point, Epaphroditus got very ill. He was at death's door. But even so, he did not turn back. In spite of the suffering, Epaphroditus committed his life to God so that the work of the gospel might continue unhindered. Now, Epaphroditus was certainly not the only servant who were to risk his life for the gospel. Recall Stephen in Acts 7, the first Christian martyr who was stoned to death because of his gospel preaching. We could also speak of the apostles, many of whom were gruesomely executed on account of their allegiance to the gospel. We could speak of the first century Christians and church fathers, men and women who were tortured and killed because of their devotion to their Savior. We could speak of the reformers of the 16th century. I've told you about William Tyndale. There were so many more, many of whom were jailed or martyred because of their faithful service to the gospel. We could speak of modern-day missionaries, Adoniram Judson, Jim Elliott, David Livingstone, Gladys Aylward, to name a few. 
individuals who gave their lives to the cause of Christ and died far, far away from home. We could speak of even more modern-day examples. The McDonald's, the Laos, Sarah John, all of them, men and women, past and present, whose commitment to the gospel echoes Paul's words in Acts 20.24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Their legacy of total sacrificial devotion to the gospel stands as enduring examples to all who would follow in the footsteps of gospel service. So here we have the first mark of biblical servanthood, an all-in commitment to the gospel that is all-encompassing, touching one's character, one's words, one's teachings, even one's life itself. Are you all-in for the gospel? Recall that the central theme of the book of Philippians is striving joyfully, joyfully striving together for the gospel. I want to turn now to the together part of this theme, and I want to ask the question, what is it that glues us together so that we would strive together? Answer, love. So the second mark of biblical servanthood is this, a loving concern towards the household of God. Let us now look at how this mark is demonstrated in the lives of Timothy, Paul, and Epaphroditus. Consider, again, Timothy. Paul said of him in verse 20, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, the phrase no one like him here literally means no one of equal soul. No one of the same soul. That is, Timothy and Paul share the same mind, the same thinking, the same heart as it relates to the welfare of the Philippians. Now, where have we heard or read this wording before? Remember, Paul wrote in 2, 2 to 4, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So the sameness of mentality has to do with a humble concern for those in the family of God, putting a high value on their needs and their interests. Gordon Fee, when he was commenting on this um, section about Timothy said this, here, the way of humility, taking the lower road by way of the cross is on full display. And here alone, as the gospel impacts the people of God in this way, at the core of our beings, can we expect truly to count for the gospel in a world that lives the opposite. One must look out for number one, after all. Agreed. As long as one recognizes the cross to dictate 
that number one is one's neighbor and not oneself. Timothy has been radically changed by Christ's work on the cross for him. All of his sins forgiven, all of his wants and needs met, all of his dreams, aspirations fulfilled in Christ's act of redemption in his life. And so the gospel freed him from a perpetual self-preoccupation with his own interests. The gospel has freed him to a loving concern towards those in the family of God. And that was how, that was what he did with the utmost sincerity. Let's consider Paul again, who shares this same mindset of selfless, other-focused love. We have already seen evidence of this in verse 17 from James's sermon last week, how Paul's life was poured out as a drink offering for the Philippians. In our passage today, even in how Paul mapped out Timothy and Epaphroditus' travel plans, he demonstrated this kind of love for others. Perhaps some of you uh, might have been in a situation like this at work. You will have been assigned to a team to complete a project. This project has big goals. It stands to benefit many in the company. Your team leader is diligent, ambitious, goal-oriented. You put in long hours, nights, weekends. But as time goes on, you start getting a sense that perhaps your leader is really only interested in your output, in your productivity, in your meeting of deadlines, but doesn't really care about you. You start to feel like you're just another body, just a means to an end, dispensable, replaceable, undervalued. Can you relate? Look now at Paul. Certainly, he served a big cause, the advancement of the gospel. And he had a couple of other big things on his plate, the day-to-day realities of living and coping as a prisoner, an impending trial with big implications, one that would determine whether he would die or live, ongoing imprisonment or freedom. Big, big things. And yet, loving concern for brothers and sisters in the household of God was never far from Paul's heart. He wanted to go see them himself, verse 24. But look at why he decided to send Timothy to Philippi, verse 19. That I too may be cheered by news of you. So apparently, Paul wanted to be cheered by news of the Philippians. So wait a minute, how, how, how is that loving towards them? It does not seem that he was just looking for some uh, feel-good news to pick himself up? Was he only after his own happiness in a selfish way? Before we arrive at that conclusion, let's explore what it is that was the, the source of Paul's joy. 2-2, two, two, again, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do you see something here about Paul's joy? It was made complete when the Philippians matured in love and unity. 
In other words, Paul's own joy was knitted together with the Philippians' growth such that when they matured, Paul's own joy was made full. That is a deep love. When your personal experience of joy is wrapped up in the success of another. Uh, Parents among us, I think you may understand something of this. When you see your children succeed, when they take their first steps, when they ride their bike without falling, when they graduate, when they succeed, you're not only happy for them, but it completes your own joy. There's nothing selfish about that. That is deep love. Look also at why Paul decided to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. Verse 28, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. For one, Paul wanted to alleviate the Philippians' deep concern for their friend by sending him, by sending him back in their midst. He was after their joy. We see also that Paul was fully invested in his brother Epaphroditus to the point of anxiety. And he would like nothing less than to see Epaphroditus fully recovering in the safety of home and amongst loved ones. He was after his friend's well-being. And don't miss this, friends. Sending Timothy and Epaphroditus away came at a big personal cost to Paul. After all, he was in prison. He had few friends. Paul made a great sacrifice to say no to his own ease and yes to others' well-being. Finally, consider again Epaphroditus, verses 26, 27. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. I want you to appreciate Epaphroditus' love for the brothers and sisters in Philippi. He was sick to the point of death. And what has been on his mind? It would have been very understandable if Epaphroditus was primarily concerned with his own health and own future. But no, no, no. His heart was filled with longing for his brothers and sisters back home. And he was distressed about their distress over his illness. An incredible love. Five years ago, I too was um, standing, I was at the bedside of a dear friend, a dear saint who was dying of cancer, of the many, many things that I treasure about my good friend Alex. One of the most remarkable things about this man's life was his genuine, genuine love for people. To know Alex was to be embraced by his love. I remember each week when I visited Alex, and that was each week when he wasted away a little bit more on his hospital bed. Each week, without fail, Alex was able to turn the conversation from his illness towards a concern for me. He would take a genuine interest in how my day went. He would ask about my upcoming plans. He would 
always ensure that I was well cared for. And closer towards the end of his life, not infrequently, I would just receive a call from Alex in the middle of the day where he would just speak to me with words of encouragement and words of brotherly affection. Such love, selfless love, how can it be even in the face of death? Only because Alex's heart has been transformed by Jesus with a love that this world cannot give. So here we have a second mark of biblical servanthood. Because the gospel has freed us from our self-preoccupation, God's servants can take their eyes off of their own circumstances in order to lovingly care for brothers and sisters in the household of God. Have you been freed by the gospel to love in this way? I want to close now with three exhortations. First, I exhort you to emulate these men. Paul has now written much about living lives worthy of the gospel. And here in this passage, he has given us flesh and blood examples of what this is to look like in his own life, in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus. So if you're thinking, I'm still finding it hard to apply the principles of this letter, well, Paul would say to you, look at these men and imitate them. Philippians 3.17, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So follow their example of all-in commitments to the gospel. Church, are you so infused with the gospel that it overflows into all the aspects of your life? Are your thoughts and speech saturated with grace and truth? Does your conduct at home, at work, at play, online, testify to the gospel's reality? Does your character display the beauty of Jesus for all to see? Will you even, if called upon to the Lord, by the Lord, to hazard your life for the gospel's sake, as we have pledged in our membership covenant? Follow their example of selfless love towards the family of God. Let's just be very practical here. Church, what could you do this week, today even, to show such selfless love even if it were to inconvenience you? I exhort you, secondly, to esteem such men. Value them highly. Hold them in high regard. Verse 29 Paul says, receive him, receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Now, who are such men that we are to esteem? Certainly not limited to men, but we are to esteem all those who have been called specifically to labor in the gospel and labor in serving others. I think of our elders, our deacons, our ministry leaders, our staff, small group leaders, what does it look like to esteem them? First, those whom we esteem, we receive in the Lord with all joy. We embrace them in the Lord like family with great delight. There is real warmth here. Sometimes we forget that our leaders are like the rest of us, fellow pilgrims journeying towards the heavenly city. We go to our leaders to seek counsel, to ask for help, to get answers, 
to provide feedback. Question, how often do we with equal measure go to them to walk alongside them, to hear their hearts, to pray with them, to encourage them? I want to say that I have seen ample evidence of this here at GFC, especially over this past year. And I'm encouraged, and I want to exhort you to do so more and more. So church, how might you walk with your leaders in fellowship this week? Second, to those whom we esteem, we show great honor and respect. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So at the same time that our leaders, our fellow saints, they have also a special role in the church to labor among us and over us. And we would do well to honor and respect them in our hearts, in our actions. Now, it's easy to respect and honor someone when you're always in agreement with them, isn't it? But what if they are not aligned with you. Church, how do you honor your leaders when you disagree with their decisions? How do you show them respect when they ask you to do something that might not quite match your preferences? Finally, I exhort you to exalt not these men, but rather exalt Christ. Yes, emulate these men. And yes, esteem such men. But yes, yes, and yes, let the lives of these men point you to the man whose life they patterned after. Let their lives point you to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who had everything, yet made himself nothing to become the ultimate servant. Jesus laid aside his rights, his glory even, burdening himself with our welfare and our need. He came not to be served, but to serve those whom he loves. Jesus became man, lived a life of perfect obedience, and bore the weight of our sins to the cross. And there, he became a sacrifice who was not only near to death, but he faced death full on. Jesus actually died, and in doing so, he paid the penalty of our sins, averting God's wrath from us so that in exchange, we may experience his favor instead of his judgment. But this Jesus, far greater than Paul, far greater than Timothy, far greater than Epaphroditus, did not stay in the grave. Rather, Jesus rose on the third day, defeating death, ascended to God's right hand, proving ultimate victory over sin and death. Church, Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone is glorious. Jesus is worthy of our undivided worship and wholehearted adoration. Friends, if you do not know this great Savior, I plead with you to 
come to him who richly gifts grace to those who would turn from their sins and place their trust in him. Come and taste the sweet mercies and loving kindness of this great Savior. Come and be reconciled with your Heavenly Father today. Brothers and sisters, we cannot live up to this biblical standard of servanthood. We know that we have failed in countless steps along the way, and we can be sure we will fail in more ways yet. But you also know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that when we come to him in repentance, his grace is sufficient to cover all our sins, all our failures. And his grace is an enabling grace. By his spirit, he empowers He empowers us to pursue biblical servanthood that brings joy and blessing to the family of God and honor to the Lord Jesus. May God be glorified in our lives of service to him. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word. And we're thankful for the countless lives of faithful men and women who have gone before us, who have served faithfully for the gospel and for the love of your children. God, I pray now that we would imitate these servants of yours, even as we imitate Christ, so that through us the gospel might be advanced. We pray also that you would give us a fresh understanding of your gospel, that you would imprint its reality in our hearts so that we might be freed from ourselves and freed to love. God, would you do all of this to exalt, to lift high the name of your Son. In his name we pray.